Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Science communication has really grown through the years. With COVID, it has just shone a light on the responsibility we have as scientists to take that step and educate our communities. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. On today's show, returning champion Dr. Catherine Young, former Senior Director of Science Policy at the Biden Cancer Initiative and current Executive Director at the Shepherd Foundation. A human of many hats, she is also a TED Fellow, Presidential Leadership Scholar, and Doctor of Philosophy with one of the most awesomely sardonic Twitter feeds around at Cat. Young. Fun fact of the day, Catherine was one of my very first guests here on Out of Patience. So if you would like to hop in your DeLorean and check out episode five from March 26th, enjoy yourself. This time around, we talk COVID-ish stuff, pivoting your nonprofit in the crisis, helping scientists learn to speak person, and the egregious misgivings of confirmation bias during a pandemic. And maybe also how the science of ophthalmology must change perfect vision to 2019 or 2021 because 2020 is dead to us and forever shall no longer be hindsight as we know it. Enjoy the show. Dr. Catherine Young, that kind of doctor, so nice, we brought her on twice. I mean, how lucky am I? Thank you so much, Matt. Welcome back to Out of Patience, which we both are, aren't we? Absolutely. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> we are. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's always the dad joke pun that works, which is why I named the show what I did. But, you know, you have been, I mean, since you were on the last time, so much has happened to the planet since the last time you were on the show. And I'm not unabashedly unashamed to say that you're one of my Twitter comedian guilty pleasures because you're so on point with everything you opine upon and comment on. You wear so many different hats that you have so much to give <laughs> to the universe <laughs> with your perspectives. Well, Matt, I, I should let you know that um, I have about like 500 draft tweets oh boy. that I just never press in, send on. It's kind of my, I, 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 looking back, I'm like, this is definitely a tool that I use for therapy in a way. And and like I also told you, it, it really, I, I find it hilarious every time somebody tells me that they actually have read one of my tweets because I just assume that the only person reading this is like my mom to keep tra you know tabs on me but <laughs> yes exactly yes we, we we would joke you know uh, always go back to the stupid cancer show because it had millions of listens but if you do the math it means that 
uh, over the course of like 400 some odd shows, let's say they were 4 million listens, it means that either 4 million people listen to every show once or one person listened to every show 4 million times. And if the latter was true, that was my dad. <laughs> I mean, I, I hear you. I did a, a very brief um, Instagram interview series, uh, pulling in some of my, my very best um, female scientists and, and medical doctors talking about COVID. And the very first people to join every single time uh, were my parents and, uh, you know, they were, they were my loyal supporter of that series. <laughs> Agree. Yeah, no, it, it comes in very handy to have them around for all the it right does. reasons. Absolutely. I wanted to talk to you about how, you know, your work at Shepherd in the wake of COVID. I'm just going through the list of people I know that are, are still in the nonprofit world and, what steps have you taken, if all, with the board, with the team? Has there been a pivot, the gaps in potential fundraising or donations or just working from home? I'm genuinely curious how things have moved, shifted around uh, at, the, at the foundation. Yeah, it's such a great question, Matt. And I think I have been so fortunate because really I came on board uh, Shepherd Foundation in October of last year with the goal to really build this foundation from, from the ground up. And I think because I've still been in the early days and months of strategizing and developing our story that when COVID occurred, it really didn't have this shock to the system for our organization that I think many nonprofits really experienced. We are a remote team anyway. I'm based in DC. I have uh, team members up in Boston, in New York, in, in Tennessee. And so we had already developed tools and means to be able to communicate on a regular basis. And really for us, the work just continued. I was really concerned about the fundraising aspect because obviously this is a, a huge phase that we're entering. Um, but talking to people who are either in the fundraising world or who are donors themselves, there doesn't seem necessarily to be this uh, pause on wanting to give to causes that, that mean a lot to people. In fact, um, there seems to be in, in some ways even um, more interest in, in reaching out and, and serving those missions and those organizations that people feel really close to. I have been, I think, one one of the, the fortunate ones where, in fact, the, the outbreak of, of coronavirus didn't actually uh, fundamentally affect how we operate and really kind of our momentum as we've been uh, growing, particularly through the strategic phase of the foundation. No, that's good to hear. I mean, again, I'm hearing combinations of like, well, like you said, we, we've been remote and we're not necessarily completely unaffected, but it hasn't had the impact on us as many of the other, you know, sort of lock, stock and ballot groups that are largely donor dependent. And when 40 million people are unemployed, it tends to drift out that you're not making donations anymore. So you have to kind of weigh your odds on what you want to do. I, I, I don't use the word pivot that frequently, mm. but I understand that you do need to figure out how you manage to get through this and I guess like shift around with style to keep everyone happy and, and a pace with your mission. 
Absolutely. I think, and I think that's the key. It's not necessarily the work that altered, but more so understanding how you as a team and from an individual uh, perspective has potentially been changed through this experience. So for me, for example, um, understanding how isolation, especially in the first, you know, few weeks of, of COVID, how that started to affect people's just, you know, mental health in a way and being able to not only um, try and keep cohesiveness of a, of a team, but also understand that now we're, we're entering into a phase where parents with children are having to do double the amount of work with their little ones running around trying to gain, you know, all their attention while you're still trying to do your job. Uh, but then also kind of the strain it's taken on a lot of people, especially those who may uh, really thrive upon social interaction to all of a sudden being isolated. And I think you know, it, it was so important to really take stock of that and to kind of, I think when we talk about pivot and, and how to be agile as a team, it was more so in terms of, okay, what, what do the team members need in order to thrive and to succeed in the job that they need to do while maintaining the idea that, you know what, we're living in a different world right now. So we're going to be flexible in how we approach the work, even though the amount of work or the mission of the work hasn't necessarily changed. I think that's an interesting pivot. See what I did there? I was, I, know. <laughs> I, I, I was, I was talking with a, a friend of mine from many, many years ago. She's a long-term pete survivor. She's in her late thirties now. She's come to our conference. She was part of the young adult cancer movement and she's living with all sorts of consequences as many, many long-term pediatric cancer survivors do 10, 20, 30 years later. They're part of the vulnerable community that is highly susceptible to COVID much like the elderly are highly susceptible to this. And she's been terrified to even leave her apartment. And it was mm -hmm. reinforced. I want to run this, like put your doctor philosophy hat on for a second. Mm -hmm. She, CVS did the right thing, not a sponsor. CVS did the right thing by creating specific windows of openings for vulnerable populations to do shopping. I mm -hmm. found that phenomenally, just like a so empathetic to the, the population writ large that they chose to do that. Mm -hmm. And she had to go to CVS. She didn't want to have things delivered or whatever. And apparently when I wasn't there, she explained it to me just anecdotally, when she got to CVS, there was almost like a bouncer outside that was kind of like eyeing people to see if they're sick and dying looking enough. And hmm. much like many long-term peed survivors, she looked fine. So mm -hmm. she was turned away. And she went through this whole, like, almost like a shameful, like, why would I lie to you that I had cancer 20 years ago? I'm very right. ill. And she just like got turned away from CVS and went back home. Hmm. Didn't get like the, like, yes, this social interaction, but now there's like this odd social stigma around right. how sick do you have to look? It's back in the news. How sick do you have to look to be taken seriously or to be respected by your fellow citizen? Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and, and that's such an interesting story, Matt. And I think, you know, for me, working as somebody working in the cancer field, I think what what has taken up a lot of bandwidth in my head is the fact that even though sometimes I feel that my working situation may be a struggle or, or uh, you know, there's a lot of challenges associated working at home and being isolated, that it does not compare to those families and those patients who who are living this 
for days, you know, weeks, months in terms of their own um, cancer journey, whether they immunocompromise or going through uh, therapy or treatments. You know, this is this is their day to day life. And here we are just scratching the surface of the challenges and what they have been dealing with on a day-to-day basis. I think in a way it's really shown us, really kind of uncovered in a way, what these patients have been going through. But again, at the super superficial level, of course, we're doing this not even, you know, potentially a, um, a life-altering disease. So even though it's been a challenge, I think COVID has been one of those things that has just unmasked so many important issues that we're dealing with, not only of those of us working in the health field, but just in society in general. I've heard it referred to as the ebb tide of reality check. Mm, I like that. It pulled back the ocean and we see all the shit below the sand that you net, like the shipwrecks and the skeletons and all the crap that you'd never normally see unless there was a tsunami coming at you, which maybe there is. I don't know. It's an interesting metaphor. (laughs) You know, what else hasn't happened this year? Oh, tsunami. Okay, let's let's oh get that out of the right. Exactly. Yeah. I was like, well, maybe 2020 is just throwing everything at us so that we can live the rest of our lives in peace and tranquility from this point on. I know, you know, right? it's like, let's get it all out of the way so that we can just uh, move on with our lives. Yes. But- Someone was telling me in, in a very bad dad joke way that hindsight can never be 2020 again. <laughs> Okay, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to have like to change it. all of vision science that you're going to be 2021 <laughs> or 2019 for perfect vision. so funny. Yes, I mean, so much truth to that. But, you know, back to your, your original question, even though that the mission and how we approach our work hasn't really changed, I think that, again, kind of going back to the idea that COVID has really unmasked uh, all these issues, or, or not even unmasked. I mean, I think we've, we've known about it all along is for, for me specifically working in the health field and, and with rare cancers is how we've kind of seen these really large bureaucratic resistant systems, whether it's the healthcare system and the research system become more agile and, and respond to something, uh, like this, this outbreak. In such a way that advocates in, in the cancer field and in many other disease fields, as you know, have been advocating for these changes all along. And so in one way, I look at this and I say, you know, this is, this is incredible. Uh, we've seen, you know, 500 diff- or more clinical trials regarding COVID interventions occur. You know, there are like 125 candidate vaccines in development right now. And you look at that with kind of, like, oh, you're like, oh, this is amazing. You know, these systems can actually absorb this and do what it needs to do at the time when they need to do it. And then on the other hand, look at the look at the system and go, well, why haven't you done this already? You know, when we look at how Congress has funded $3.6 billion just for COVID research, you know, how, wh- why has this not happened for other diseases already? And so I think the challenge for us now working in the healthcare fields will be how do we really kind of transfer this urgency and this momentum that we see with COVID into the fields that we are advocating for? And how do we ensure that what we've just seen unfold here with COVID occurs in our own disease populations as well? Back with our guest after the break. Thank <sighs> you. 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. So I want to shift gears, not necessarily from like one to six, but maybe one to two in terms of let's look at the conversation on mental health because of the rare disease communities and the cancer communities. You know, you're already dealing with so much crap, your stress, your anxiety, you may have lost your job. And here you are now listening to this side of the aisle and this news channel and this magazine and this newspaper. What's your thought what do you i mean there's no one answer for this but how do you try to make sense of what you think is objective reasoning versus hard science where they have to be conservative mm. versus the value of is there even peer-to-peer cancer covid conversations going mm-hmm. on yeah i think you know it's such an important discussion to have because the amount of information that we are handed every day is just overwhelming. And I think for us as a society, the challenge becomes how do you really wade through this information and know what is really the right information you should be absorbing versus the information you should just be discarding and ignoring along the way. And I think this is a challenge for everyone. It's a challenge for for scientists even who, even though we've been trained to think critically about things, it's so easy to get sucked into the big salacious headlines because the brain is just going to, you know, want more of that. And that's just a fundamental fact. <laughs> and so um, for me, it's been really to try just on a personal level to remain really up to date with what is coming out, but at the same time, just take more breaks kind of in that informational stream during the day where I don't kind of participate in social media or look at the news or, you know, take in any more external information that are what I need to because it just does become too overwhelming. And I think it's important for us all, and, and these sources will all differ depending on who we are, but to try and find those one or two sources that you feel is providing you with the best information at that time and start to rely on that and start to kind of try and fade everything out in the background because otherwise, you know, you can really spin around in in circles with even just articles based on treatments out there. One will come out and say, this is great news. And the next, on the next page, it will say, well, you know, this is contentious and it is a struggle. I think this, this, this will not go away though. And I think we really need to 
start to learn the skills needed to really be able to sift through this information carefully and with a critical eye uh, to really know what is healthy for us to consume and, and what is not. And also recognize that, you know, even though we love the, you know, the more kind of controversial uh, things that if you are going to be uh, attracted to those types of headlines and those articles, that it's important that you don't just hit the headlines and the few sentences, that you really do take the time to read the full article, understand what those sources are, and and know the source of that the information. Like, where is it coming from and, and what is its goal ultimately? And and that takes a lot of time and effort. And I think that's where we struggle with because in you know our day-to-day lives, we don't have that time and effort really to put into it. And that's where the, the struggle becomes, I think. Yeah. It's just like, how do you even be aware of your own confirmation bias when it's baked into the way you want to live your life? But I love that Twitter really tried to make retweeting a little harder by helping mm. you figure out, are you sure you want to retweet this? Did you really <laughs> read the article? And I think it's gone now. Like no one did it and whatever, you know, yeah. I, 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 and I know Twitter is an echo chamber and 90% of this country mm-hmm. doesn't even go on there and no one cares. They right. just want to live their life. And, yes. you know, but I, I did have a guest on my show uh, Matt Lamb, who's an epidemiologist at Columbia, mm-hmm. and I asked him how they build risk models around non-compliance for mask wearing, and he's like, "Oh, you mean the douchebags that don't care about other people? Yes, those people <laughs> yeah, those that don't people, care about other right. people. Yes. So, you know, they actually account for non-compliance and mask wearing when they do their risk models, and and mm-hmm. when there's spikes in like in Texas or Arizona, it's very different. But now they're factoring in." All this data, and I'm not quoting sources, and this is ethereal Matthew exposition, that all the protests that happened all over the country did not cause spikes in incidents, and that there is, I, I hate even wanting to like throw up in my mouth quoting the administration, but the the death toll is way lower because maybe the virus has changed a little bit, or it is the mm. summer, and how do you make sense of this? I think what frustrates me the most is that there really are no sort of uh, schoolhouse rock lay people doing basic explainers to the average American who just doesn't want to die, just wants to be safe, is aware that their behavior can kill a grandparent and mm. and figure out that, oh, my God, I know somebody with cancer. Maybe I'm just going to wear a mask and these yeah. You know, they say these Karen videos all over the place. I right. feel like, oh, my gosh. by the way, I feel bad for anyone named Karen that isn't a Karen. So just empathy for the Karens out there. I totally do, too. I have friends named Karen and I I feel for them every time I see a Karen meme. Um, although, you know, I do feel that they are um, obviously for a good cause to you in, right. in, in those in teaching teachable moments. Have you seen the advocate groups, I guess, would be like the trusted communities of rare disease and, and, and highly susceptible populations having layperson messaging about risk and behavior? You know, I, I think I think they are trying. Um, I think the the challenge becomes how do you reach people who, like you said, not everyone's on social media. So when I when my, when I'm on social media, I'm just getting a stream full of information in my my bubble. It, it's it's what I believe. It, it's people who are reiterating the fact that we need to wear masks, social distance, et cetera, et cetera. The challenge becomes how do you reach those people who are not 
plugged into those social streams, who are isolating and and really uh, just using perhaps TV as a source of, of information. So listening to the news. And, and we know that the news in general doesn't do a great job of, you know, providing that really lay information about why it's so important. So really breaking it down on a level where people can kind of get it. So I think the efforts are out there. I just, I'm not quite sure that they're kind of reaching everybody, which, which, which uh, is a hard thing to do. Yeah, it, it really is the, the great unknown. And again, part of that ebb tide has revealed, I would almost say, gaps in the way that the advocate communities are able to communicate with such disaffective information that's sporadic at best and too academic at worst. Right. And, and you know, this, this idea of science communication has really grown through the years, but I think with COVID, it has just shone a light on just the, the immense importance and really the responsibility we have as scientists to take that step and educate our communities, educate our families, educate our friends with the information that we have. You know, I will die on this hill that every scientist has an obligation to do that because we have been taught how to sift through that information and to really distill down you know, the correct scientific and, and interpret that those studies. And for us not to be able on a personal level, be sharing that information with everyone around us in the best way that we know how is, you know, I, is, is a crime in, in my sense, because it is so important. And I think for scientists, when I, when I think about graduate training and how important it will become, and I think this will kind of be a catalyst for this is, is how do we teach scientists to communicate? How do we teach them to become those that are able to spread the word and good sound science in a way that people can, you know, create or, or receive value from it? Um, and I, I think this is going to be the next chapter in, in how we train scientists from here on out. Yeah, and, and shout out to NORD, the National Organization for Rare Disorders. Their website has done a great job, I would say, laypersoning or schoolhouse rocking mm, complex mm-hmm. scientific information into digestible content for the average person looking for information. And just another like a, a another shout out to when you were the Biden Cancer Initiative. You guys did a great job creating almost like like high school level narrative on your homepage about what you're doing and why this matters. And and to your point, like I'm on the fence. I, I think scientists and researchers should should speak scientific researcher language. And maybe it's maybe you need a babblefish translator to get it down to a chunklet size. And your people, you put your pants on the same way as everyone else, but is asking you to adopt a sort of a almost a, a consumer pedagogical communication platform to talk to average people. Is that valuable? Is that viable? Is that a real thing? I mean, I think there is a group of scientists who who really excel at that. And, and sure, not, not every scientist is going to want to go out there and, and be a science communicator about science in general. You know, a lot of people went into science because they really actually do want to do the research and, and make a contribution to society in that way. Um, but they are for sure scientists who are incredibly passionate and and want to educate the public. And I think it will be really important that we equip those who really want to go out there and communicate science with the skills to be able to do that. In graduate training, full PhD programs, even master's program, we, we've been 
very, very sparse on that kind of training. And I think that that's going to need a change. And again, this, this doesn't, this doesn't relate to, you know, every single scientist needs to go and beat the, that, that path out there. But, um, for those who have that natural inclination, we need to equip them with the skills. There, there is an absolute skill to science communication and how you distill that down to the, those digestible bites. Um, and we need to do a better job um, at, at equipping our future scientists with that, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to say how far we've come and there's a lot more to go, but just the recognition that there is actually a desire for patients to want credible information and who better to get it from than the scientists, but can, can you speak person as a scientist? <laughs> right. Can you speak person? Exactly. <laughs> uh, exactly. That's exactly right. <laughs> um, you know, and I think I think this has been really well known is this gap between patients and, and scientists. How do we close that gap? Right. I mean, they, they shouldn't be this complete disconnect between scientists and patients. Patients should be able to have those conversations with scientists and scientists should be able to have those conversations with patients, understand from a personal level what it is that they're studying and, and how it is that they might be affecting this patient population down the line. So I think there is there is there is great value, especially encouraging that gap to be closed between scientists and patients themselves. Dr. Catherine Young, the former senior director of science policy at the Biden Cancer Initiative, currently serves as the executive director of the Shepherd Foundation. She is all the things, and I'm so excited to have had you back. Uh, let's get you on thrice at some point because there's an endless discussion at hand. Matt, thank you so much for this opportunity. I, I love to talk to you as always. Um, happy to come back anytime you let me know. Okay, stay safe. Talk soon. Thanks, you too. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.